We're looking at Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15. I'm going to read the verse and then we're going to pray and dig in a little bit. Genesis 3.15 I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Genesis 3.15. Let us pray. The words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in Your sight, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. Lord, give grace now by Your Spirit that the truth might be proclaimed, that the saints might be wise in weighing Your Word and blessed through the proclamation of the Gospel. Lord, we know that in Your Gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So bless Your Gospel going forth now. And we ask these things, Papa, in Jesus' name. Amen. It's interesting. We've all been through uh, times where they started sort of good or even neutral. And then we experienced a crash, a difficulty, a hardship. And then worked through it, and then later on, it was ten times better. Wow, turned out glorious. Well, personally, in my, in my sports career, my fighting career, I started as a, a karate guy, a martial artist, and did all the tournaments and such, and, and got quite a lot of wins in God's providence, and it was wonderfully good. And then, and then I got in the ring. <laughs> and, uh, and I was set up a little bit as the, as the opponent, but I ended up getting knocked out really bad in my first fight. I ended up getting knocked out. I was probably unconscious for a minute on the ground. I spiral fractured my ankle, came down on it, twisted ligaments in my knee. Oh! And, uh, my, my parents thought, oh good, he'll stay out of the ring, right? And, uh, and I even thought that at first. But then, but then it was interesting because as I looked at the, the videotape, I did in God's providence really well. I wasn't a Christian at this point. And then I persevered and trained harder and learned the art of kickboxing better and came back by God's amazing providence to be a two-time world champion as a professional. It, it was a glorious thing from an earthly perspective. <laughs> but I never would have thought that when I was getting knocked out and right after I got knocked out. It seemed so terrible. So too we see in the Scriptures. God has planned and brought about in His providence glorious thing at first made man, Adam, and the woman good. 
and then allowed them to fall. And it seemed like that was it. There was no hope. And then as we're going to see in the Scriptures, God brought glorious redemption. So let's dig in a little bit. First, I want to start for a context in Genesis 1, 26-28, where God gave a kingship to Adam. God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over all the earth, over all living creatures that move on the ground. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air over livestock, over every living creature that moves on the ground. God gave Adam a kingship over the whole world. He was the king of the world. Psalm 8 says, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. Yet, as we know at present, we do not see everything subject to him. Right? However, He gave Adam kingship. Then God gave Adam um, a negative command, so to speak, from a logical negative. In Genesis 2, verse 16, Lord God commanded the man. He said, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. That's free will. Mankind really had free will before the fall. They could have chose the good. They had the moral ability to choose the good. They had the moral ability to choose the bad. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. And in the Hebrew, it's emphatic. Dying you will die, it says. That's called the covenant of works. God made mankind and gave a covenant to mankind in Adam. Adam means mankind. He was the king of all mankind, the representative of all mankind. God said, obey me, the strict one command. You can have kingship over everything. All the gardens, fruits and vegetables are coming out for you. They're yours except for one tree. And when you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, as we move forward in Genesis chapter 2, where it looks at day 6 in more detail, we see that after God gave Adam that command, he saw that it's not good for man to be alone, who needs a helper suitable for him. Can I get an amen, gentlemen? And uh, Lord God passed the animals in front of Adam, and that was his first act as king. He named the animals. And then the Lord God put the man to sleep and took from the man's side, the Hebrew is there, his rib, the text says, and made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man, and the man said, let's see what Adam named his wife. Because we tend to think differently on this than maybe the Scriptures teach. Let's look. 2.23 of Genesis. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. She shall be named woman, for she was taken out of man. Well, as we know, that was 
pre-fall, and the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. There was no sin involved, no perversion in their thinking, no wrong affections, desires, passions, and feelings. So they had no shame, no, no guilt, right? Undealt with sin brings guilt, which brings shame, which brings fear, which makes us run from God. They had no problems. Now let's dig into Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Of course, Satan possessing the serpent. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the trees in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die. The serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now just a couple observations there. Um, the scriptures have some attributes. Theologians say there's five attributes of scripture. Clarity, authority, inerrancy, sufficiency, and necessity. Uh, Satan attacked all five of those attributes right there in his three little perversions, twistings of truth. Are you sure? Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Is it clear? He attacked the clarity of Scripture. You will not surely die attacking the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture. And God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. There's more you need to know. Scripture isn't sufficient. And it's not necessary. Of course, Attacking God's character through attacking God's Word. Nothing new under the sun, huh, saints? Well, the woman was deceived by Satan and Adam chose to listen to his wife. And thus, the fall came about. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. I want to just Mention as we go forward, uh, a sixfold judgment of God happened at that very point. God said, When you eat of it, you will surely die. And mankind came in bondage under God's wrath at that very point. Ephesians 2 3 says, We're by nature children of wrath. Adam forfeited his kingdom. As an act of just wrath, God allowed. Satan to step into that kingdom and become the prince of the power of the air, the god of this world, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Satan became the spiritual father and prince or earthly king of Adam, the woman, and all fallen mankind under him. Wow! They became in slavery to the bondage of this world, Galatians 4.3. They became spiritually dead. When you eat of it, you will surely die. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. 
mankind was in bondage to physical death. Adam lived 930 years and then he died. Seth lived 912 years and then he died. Even Methuselah, right? 969 years and then he died. And of course, eternal damnation. For the wage of sin is death. Sixfold bondage, saints. The whole idea of free will was lost in Adam. And man came under a sixfold bondage. Still human responsibility, but utter moral bondage. Let's go forward and see that lived out. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized they were naked. Right? Guilt, shame, and fear started creeping up because of their sin. So they dropped on their knees, cried out to God for a Savior. Is that what it says? No. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is autosoterism, the first attempt at self-salvation. Glory be to me. Did it work? Nope. Nope. Then the man and the woman heard the sound of the Lord God as He was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they, they should have run to God, fully confessed their sin, and cried out to Him for a Savior. But what does it say? They hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. God is so merciful. He's a seeking and saving God. Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And of course, God isn't looking for information. He's looking for repentance. The man said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. You might say, well, wait a minute. He, he wasn't naked any longer. Well, he still felt spiritually naked and guilty and ashamed. So he hid. Lord God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you you must not eat from? So just to step back a little bit. Um, God says, who told you that you were naked? I didn't illuminate that thought of guilt and shame and fear so that you would run from me. Hmm. Has, have you forfeited your kingdom, Adam, and allowed somebody else to step in there as your new spiritual father and king? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you? You must not eat from? Now, if fallen man in Adam was able to repent at this point, God confronted him face to face. He said, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you? You must not eat from. The man said, the woman you put here with me. It's all your fault, God. And if you want to send somebody to hell... She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. That's how wicked as fallen sinners we are. We blame God for our sin. Then we blame our loved ones or somebody else. Then the Lord God looked at the woman and says, What is this you have done? She said, The devil made me do it. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Dear saints, here are four objects of blame shifting that we still use today even as Christians. I don't know of any other categories, but I'm open to learning more 
But these are four that start here. We blame God for our troubles. God, why did you do this to me? God, why did you bring this? Why did you allow this? Why did you put me through this? We blame each other, even our loved ones sometimes. We blame the devil. The devil made me do it. And remember, the serpent was only an instrument of the devil. We blame the surrounding influences, instruments, or circumstances that the devil uses. But the Bible says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, Adam and the woman were not repentant. They were completely the opposite. They were excusing and blame shifting. And now God says this to the serpent. God looks at the serpent and says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. There's the curse on the serpent. Apparently he had a little feetsies or something. I don't know. But now he's going to crawl on his belly and eat dust. And, of course, the serpent is a great uh, mark for all of us. Every time we see snakes, we should be reminded of the fall. And then God looks at Satan, so to speak, or directs his attention to Satan in the text. And he directs his attention to Satan, who now became the prince of the power of the air, the god of the sage, who has blinded the minds of Adam and the woman, and is now the spiritual father of all fallen humanity. Remember, the woman and Adam chose to be in leagues, in partnership with Satan, to trust his word, not God's, to love him, so to speak. So God says to Satan in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity. I will make enemies, that means. I will put an enemy disposition between you and the woman. I'm going to save the woman. And between your offspring, children of the devil, and hers, ooh, a godly line, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Let me hit it again with a little hand motion. Adam and the woman became children of the devil. God says to Satan, I will make enemies, Satan, between you and the woman. I'm going to save her out of your kingdom. And between your offspring and hers, I'm going to give her a godly line. He, one of those godly offspring, will crush your head. And you will strike his heel. You'll get a piece of him. That is the first gospel promise in the Bible. That is called proto-evangelium. The first evangelistic promise of the Bible. And God is so clear there. He says, Satan, you thought you ruined everything? Guess what? I'm going to save the woman. I'm going to produce a godly offspring through her, even a Savior someday, who will crush your head. You're going to lose in the end, Satan. Now I want to observe a couple things at this point, because this is the beginning of the covenant of grace. This is the first promise of grace and redemption. And I was thinking one time, 
I was told that the tulip are called the doctrines of grace. And I was thinking as I'm meditating on this in Genesis 3.15, just trying to um, draw out as much spiritual truth as I could, uh, praying and meditating and studying. And, and uh, I thought, hmm, Lord, is the tulip in this verse? If, if this is a promise of the covenant of grace, and if the tulips are the doctrines of grace, is the tulip in this verse? So I started studying. And I thought to myself, hmm, I will put. God had to do it. Man lost his free will, his moral freedom. Man is totally depraved. God had to do it. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Wow, God chose to save the woman? And God chose to give her a godly offspring? Beforehand? Huh, unconditional election. He will crush your head. You mean there's going to be a Savior who will actually crush the head for his own offspring? Limited atonement, definite atonement. I will put enmity, irresistible grace. God will change the heart and make an enemy disposition and regenerate. He will crush your head. Perseverance of the saints. The whole tulip is right there, saints. Wow. Either explicit or implicit in the text. In the promise of the covenant of grace. Adam, the woman, and all humanity in him since the fall are under God's wrath. And if anybody was going to be saved, God had to initiate redemption. God said, I will put enmity. God did that. Wow. God did that. You say, why would God do that? You say, they were blame shifting. They, they blasphemed God. They committed cosmic treason. Why would God do that? <laughs> and there's only, I think, one answer. As my son said, because he wanted to. Right? But he chose us according to his will and pleasure. God is love, and he chose to display the fullness of his glory through saving a remnant, an elect people of God. God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman. I'm going to save the woman. Why would God save the woman when she was the first one who sinned and then she let her husband astray? Adam was the responsible head, yes, but the woman was first. Because God is merciful. Because God chose her. And chose to make the promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. That's us, guys. We're the sheep of Christ. I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. Wow. Right at the get-go, God promises. I'm going to save the woman, produce God the offspring through her. Even a Savior someday who will crush Satan's head. He, one of those offspring, he, who in the Hebrew, personal, third person, singular pronoun, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God promised victory. Of course, just because God promised her redemption doesn't mean there's no earthly consequences. And we know that. Amen? Life is hard. 
So God promised, He says, uh, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Agonizing child rearing and bearing. Your desire will be to rule over your husband. The idea is there and he will rule over you. Perverted, cursed relationships, roles. And now he looks at Adam in 3.17 and he says, to Adam God said, because you listened to your wife. God said, you listened to your wife instead of me and ate from the tree that I commanded you must not eat from. He said, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. With the sweat of your brow you will eat your food since from it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you return. You're going to die, Adam. God said to Adam, the, the earth, the ground, the soil is cursed because of your rebellion. And He said, you're going to die, Adam, from dust you are and to dust you return. Remember last time God confronted Adam? didn't turn out so well. Adam blamed the woman you put here with me, God, and tried to get the woman sent to hell for him. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Now God confronts him again, as you just heard, and He tells him he's going to be cursed to an agonizing, laborious, hard-working life now, digging crops, and he's going to die. So now I'm terrified at Adam's response. Oh no. 3.20. Let's look. I'm almost afraid to look, but let's see how Adam responded. 3.20. Adam named his wife Chava, Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. What? You say, wait a minute, Jimbo. Why would Adam honor his wife and rename her after what happened? He was trying to get a center... Get her to take the take the the bullet for him a minute ago, and he was blaming God. Why would he all of a sudden honor the woman, rename her Eve Chava in the Hebrew quality life giver? Unless, unless this is the great fruit of Adam's repentant faith, he believed the promise. That God was going to save the woman, produce godly offspring through her, quality life giver, spiritual life giver, even a savior someday who would crush Satan's head. This is a great display of Adam's repentant faith. Adam believed the promise and comforted himself. After hearing he was going to agonize while he lived, and then God told him, from dust you are to dust you return, you're going to die. Adam comforted himself by believing the promise and renaming his wife Eve, quality life giver, spiritual life giver. Mm-mm-mm is the idea there. Now you say, well, okay, so God promised the woman redemption, and then He saved Adam. Adam believed. But hold on. Hold on, Jimbo, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9.22. Amen. Amen. Genesis 3.21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and He clothed them. God made the first shed blood sacrifice. You don't get animal skin unless you slay the animal dead. 
There's a great picture, too, of both sides of the Gospel. Through faith, God credits Christ's righteousness to our account, the clothing, the skins, and then our sin to Christ's account, the shed blood on the cross. Wow, incredible picture. And I believe very clearly from the Scriptures, God instituted the sacrificial system at this point. How do I know? Because Adam and Eve now taught their children to bring shed blood. By faith, Abel offered fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock, shed blood. By faith, Noah came off the ark, built an altar, and brought shed blood. Abraham shed blood. Isaac shed blood. And of course, God used Moses to write it down for the priestly system. It was always by faith in the promised Messiah and pictured or typified by shed blood. Right from the get-go. And of course, to finish Genesis 3, the Lord God said, Man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. See, Satan only spoke a half-truth. You'll be like God. You don't, you don't become like God by listening to Satan and following him. But in God's plan and providence, you do become most like God as possible by falling into sin and judgment and deserving damnation and then being redeemed. So you could see the fullness of saving grace and mercy and love. The Lord God said about Adam and Eve, they have now become like one of us knowing good and evil. They must not be allowed also to take from the tree of life and live forever. It would be very unkind of God to let them live forever in these bodies of death when He could... Let them physically die, bring them to heaven, and then someday return to give them glorified bodies. So kicks them out of the garden, puts the angels guard. This is the first gospel, saints. This is the first gospel that was enough to save Adam and Eve. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain did. Save Abel. To save Enoch, who walked with God and then was no more, because God took him away. This is the first gospel and the continuing and only gospel that was realized and fulfilled in Christ at the cross. It's the same gospel, and it's the gospel that is the power of God for the salvation of you, of me, and those lost sheep that haven't been gathered yet, that are out in this dark world. Dear saints, I, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. Get to know this Gospel more. Right? From cover to cover in the Scriptures. And share it. Stir yourselves up by God's grace. Fan the flame in you to share that good news. It's okay if it's tracks and you're not so good at it. God uses tracks. Reading history has used tracks tons of times. God uses little seeds of truth that you plant. God uses your praises, praise the Lord in public to point people to Himself and to bring Himself glory when you do it by faith. So as we close, dear saints, I, I just want to encourage you. Just as God saved the woman and Adam through the promised Redeemer, saved Abel, Save Enoch, save Noah, and all the Old Testament saints, and has saved you. So He can and does save other souls out there. But He does it through the Gospel. So be encouraged to share this Gospel ever so much more. Let us pray.
I'm not ashamed of the Gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Lord God, thank You for Your saving Gospel, the good news, the saving good news of the person, offices, and work of Jesus Christ. Thank You, Jesus. Lord, help us share Your Gospel ever so much more with our children, with our families, with our co-workers, Lord, with those people on the streets who need You, Lord, our communities, Lord. Save God and use us as Your shining lights and ambassadors. Lord, help us be courageous and speak the truth in love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.